Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. We're speaking with Brian Lynn from the Sportsman's Alliance to talk about his experience at the Wildlife Society Conference in Spokane, Washington, which has become a very newsworthy event because the very preeminent conservation organization opened its doors to people who want to openly undermine true conservation in the form of hunting, fishing, and the like. They want to reimagine conservation and the North American model as we know it. So he goes into detail about his experience. Brian also talks about the stunning reversal of the New Jersey black bear ban hunt that was recently reinstated, soon to go back into effect in December. So we briefly touched on that subject, and I will bring on friend of the show, Cody McLaughlin, to go more into detail on the bear hunt in the next episode. But we lightly touched upon that. We also talked about how important elected officials are, specifically governors, in wildlife management decisions, those people you elect to state offices as well, and how that could impact your ability to hunt and fish in your state, as we're seeing playing out in Washington State, New Jersey, and in some of the recently decided elections there. So a lot of wildlife conservation for you guys to absorb, and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Brian Lynn from the Sportsman's Alliance. Hello, listeners. We are rejoined by Brian Lynn from the Sportsman's Alliance. You may have seen on social media conversation and kind of updates about a wildlife conference that took place in Spokane, Washington, and how preeminent organization has started to allow people who don't represent hunting interests at the table. And we're also going to kind of deconstruct with Brian what happens with some of the governor's mansions in the new year and how kind of flipping that occurred in several places or even kind of a more hard turn in Pennsylvania, for instance, could imperil how wildlife managers are selected, what will happen with game commissioners going forward. And so, Brian, thank you so much for joining today to talk about these two updates. Yeah, thank you, Gabby. Great to be here. What happened at this wildlife summit that you went to? Who hosted it? What needs to be known about this? And what impact could, let's say, allowing different not-so-friendly stakeholders have on wildlife conservation going forward? Yeah, so this was the Wildlife Society, and they are, you know, a member-driven organization that uh, is comprised of state agencies. Uh, They're biologists, land managers, different guys like that. So they had their national convention here in Spokane, um, where I live and grew up and everything. Uh, And Usually it's not a big deal. I mean, it's a bunch of scientists getting together, talking about different studies and, and you know, real uh, high level, 
biology and uh, wildlife management stuff. Uh, but this year they allowed, and you know, as I talked to the CEO and stuff uh, beforehand, they kind of slipped through the cracks. There supposedly there isn't policy, you know, around uh, content of panel discussions and things like that. Uh, and so these guys put in a uh, request for a panel discussion as well as having a booth and uh, hosting a reception. And it was comprised of, well, there's a couple of different pieces. There's the wildlife for all piece, which is based out of Arizona. And they're a group who uh, is pushing for changes to wildlife game commissions, uh, claiming they need to be more democratic. You know, they're all white males who hunt and these wildlife is to be kept in public trust and so everybody it should be representative of everybody's views and they cite the you know the pillars of the north american model the problem is they've taken things out of context bastardized it uh to make it fit their ideology and so but they were allowed to have this panel discussion then there's kind of uh the washington wildlife reform coalition who, you know, they're pushing it here in Washington and we're the crown jewel. I mean, we are there. We're the epitome of what they want right now. We have a uh, 5-4 anti-hunting game commission appointed by Governor Jay Inslee with really no way to change this or deal with it. And so they had a, uh, uh, a retreat before this big convention and how they're going to go about this and talk about this. And I mean, if it wasn't real, you would laugh. It sounded like a Saturday Night Live skit. They're out on Vashon Island, very plush, high-end resort, eating vegan meals. They, they stressed the vegan meals a lot. It was kind of hilarious. And sunrise yoga, you know, pretty much everything you, you, you know, your caricature of an animal rights activist is, is what they are. But the people leading it are no joke. It's the Humane Society of the United States, Center for Biological Diversity, Wildlife for All, uh, the Northwest Animal Rights Active, whatever, network. Uh, Big players with big money who have a lot of influence. And this is what they're trying to keep pushing in Washington. And this is what they're trying to take to other states. Having a seat at the table at this conference allowed them to talk about this for an hour and about 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes to a room full of biologists that from other states. What was the reaction from the biologists present? Did they receive their perspective well? Did they question them? Was there any resistance to perhaps their advocacy? Well, yeah. So, you know, talking with the Wildlife Society leadership going in, they weren't sure exactly how this was going to play out. Uh, And just to be clear, the Wildlife Society does good things, you know, and there's good leadership there. And, uh, they actually stuck up for uh, me at the end of the thing because Good. they called out the column that I wrote in in their presentation. They called it out and called it extreme and uh, radical and dangerous rhetoric was the words used. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, they pretty much there was four or five of them that presented and they talked for 15 minutes or so each and uh, 15, 20 minutes. And pretty much took up the whole hour and a half. There was only enough time for like four questions. And my buddy was a a 
lion biologist here. He asked a question. Uh, another guy from uh, Washington Fish and Wildlife asked a question. There's only like three or four questions that were asked. And it pushed back on it. You know, what, what funding model are you going to use to replace Pittman-Robertson? They didn't really have an answer. They kind of broad stroke brushed it. They brought up the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. That needs to pass. They said they, you know, need to, the general fund needs to be used. You know, everybody needs to pay. It's like, okay, you know, are, are you crazy? You're either being, you know, you're either naive or being blatantly dishonest, thinking that Democrats and Republicans in this day and age, when we have soaring crime, when we have homeless epidemics, drug issues, mental health issues, that they're going to join hands in all 50 states and allocate funding for wildlife management on a broad base spectrum consistently and stable. It's not going to happen, you know, but that's their answer. And they just act like it will happen. So I don't know if they're naive or just being, you know, deceitful. Others asked, uh, you know, how you weigh one endangered species who's on an upward trajectory, like the wolf, against other endangered species, the woodland caribou around here, that were extirpated because of predation. You know, uh, one reason was predation by wolves and mountain lions, which happened under one of the presenters' watch, Harriet. She was the endangered species coordinator for Washington when the woodland caribou was extirpated and they took the last couple up to Canada and put them in pens to try to uh, bolster their numbers back up. They never had solid answers. You know, and unfortunately we didn't have enough time to keep going, but uh, Kim Thorburn, who's a game and fish commissioner in her last couple of months here, uh, likely won't be reappointed because she has pushed back vocally against these people sitting on the game commission and against Jay Inslee. Uh, she called them out and said, you talk about values, you talk about competing values, but in your paradigm, your, your values are the only ones that get heard. They, everybody else gets shut out, you know, and she made point blank said, you know, people who uh, in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And that's pretty much what it boiled down to. Their entire presentation was hypocrisy. They would claim victimhood. Then they would, you know, show how they're going to do things. They claim that, you know, the white male is 99% of game commissions, and that's not reflective of society. Yet everybody that presented there was highly educated, affluent, very affluent white people. I mean, they live in gated communities and don't have interactions. Don't They're insulated from the, the fallout of poor management, wildlife management. There's no bears going into Duval, you know, gated communities where the Seahawks live and doctors live. And that's where one of the guys lived who presented, uh, Fred Kuntz, a former commissioner. He called and he got up and presented and cried about how as a game commissioner and he voted against the spring bear hunt, he received death threats. He made a point of this like, oh, I'm too old for this. I mean, I got death threats and he brought it up over and over again. And that's what's wrong with these people. Yet. How often do we see hunters that are victimized, women and children? I mean, children. I've received calls from mothers that, you know, their twin preteen daughters are being harassed and stalked by adults, you know. And so they would cry a victim thing and then they would, uh, you know, try to push it off. They called me radical, called my my uh, my column dangerous rhetoric. 
And then the guy got up there talking about values and he shows a harvested wolf yet. He doesn't just show a harvested wolf. He shows them with the guys had white hoods on holding an American flag and ARs and trying to tie it to larger societal issues, racism and extremism, everything like that. And he even said it was a legal wolf hunt. So if it's a legal wolf hunt, do you have a problem with the wolf being killed or do you have a problem with these guys looking like jackasses? If we want to talk about extremes, they have plenty of extremes on their side. People have firebombed, you know, Michigan State, firebombed uh, Vail ski resorts who go out and harass hunters, stock hunters, you know. So it was a very point the finger and uh, glass houses throwing stones type I presentation. Think, I think the outdoor industry has largely been immune from these really distracting uh, culture wars or, or I would say the wokening of that. I mean, it, it should be immune from that because we can naturally be diverse. We don't need to say we need to correct ourselves. We can do it with action. We've attracted more people to fishing and hunting without having to put in drastic policies into place or atone for our past sins. We have more people of diverse backgrounds, racially, socioeconomically in the sport because it just naturally attracts people. And so it's interesting that it was kind of a shame fest that was going on there and so you mentioned, obviously, the repeat actors that are always involved, the Center for Biological Diversity, Sierra Club, and these types and these new groups, the Washington Wildlife First, uh, Wildlife for All. How influential can they be truly in appointments for game commissions? Because that is largely at the behest of the governor. I don't know if it will work in many states, maybe a handful of states, but are they gaining traction, uh, especially oh, yeah. Wildlife for All? Yeah, definitely. You know, especially Washington. Uh the governor basically has carte blanche to appoint whoever he wants. He's supposed to follow these uh, requirements in the mandate, but it says, you know, somebody who's from the hunting and fishing community, the conservation community, which again, <laughs> they kind of bastardized the word conservation and anybody, you know, we already know how that happens. Conservation gets, you know, uh, interchangeable with preservationist. Right. And so, you know, it's easy to say, well, I followed the mandate and they can say that they are following the mandate, which part of it is to maximize recreational opportunities. But it's can and may not will and shall, you know, they, they don't have to if it's in their opinion that, you know, that it's not needed. Um, and so that's how they're getting around it. And actually, this group and the commission itself, those five anti hunters and likely to be two more here at the end of the year when they he uh, Inslee appoints two more for uh, Thorburn and McIsaac, who are uh, they're, they're terming out and likely won't be re reappointed. Uh, their next thing is to push and change the mandate and change what they have to do and to change how things are done so they can eliminate recreational opportunities from the mandate. And they don't have to they aren't bound by even that perception of doing it. But we can't call them out on it either because they approve, they approve, you know, the game plan and they're, they're still hunting, but they're taking little pieces here and there while working at the higher level to change that mandate. And so, you know, Washington especially, but other places, uh, they're working to do this, to make it get uh, anti-hunters and environmentalists, animal rights activists on game commissions. We fight this every year in Vermont, New Hampshire. I think Michigan had it last year where they try to change the requirements. Sometimes it's, you know, hold a hunting license for five years 
you know, out of the last seven or whatever it is, uh, be a part of uh, sportsmen's organizations or something. They're constantly trying to change the requirements. And in Vermont, I believe it was that they couldn't change. It was three years straight. We beat them and kept them from changing those requirements. So then they came in the next year with a proposal to create a council that oversees oversees the uh, that game commission and approves everything they do. So they're trying to layer bureaucracy on top of it and gain control any way they can. And what can exactly conservationists do? I know supporting organizations like Sportsman's Alliance is pivotal and all the other groups that are like-minded, but what specifically can people in states like Washington do? Because you're on, you're unfortunately at the mercy of the governor who is going to be appointing these people. I don't know if you can legally challenge these people for being derelict in their duty for administering true conservation in terms of wildlife management and such. But what action can be taken to stop this if there aren't that many options available? So, so what's a practical way to challenge this, you would say? Uh, I mean, it, it's tough right now here in Washington. Like I said, we're the crown jewel for them and it's the dark days of wildlife management. I mean, we don't have a lot of recourse. Uh, there's enough gray area and loopholes that makes a legal challenge very, very difficult. Uh, I mean, making noise and bad press. <laughs> we, we know politicians don't like bad press. Right. And I mean, there that that's a right now. It's kind of where we're at is pointing out how this philosophy has failed anywhere it's been implemented and how dangerous it is. I mean, here in Washington, well, a couple of years ago, we had some uh, mountain bikers that were, one was killed by a mountain lion just outside Seattle, outside North Bend. And he was eaten, half his body was eaten by the time they found him. The other guy was mauled and his face deconstructed. We had a little girl this summer, nine years old, just uh, two hours from here. Her face, it almost killed her. It, it was crunching on her skull and had her and her face was ripped up. She'll carry those scars of mismanagement forever. You know, uh, we have dogs, service dogs being taken off porches by mountain lions and being shredded. We had a bear in uh, Leavenworth, in the town of Leavenworth. You know, and this is a tourist town that attacked a woman and her dog. Uh, shoot, my, I grew up in the basin in the middle of the state. It's pretty much a desert. Growing up there, I didn't know that we even had mountain lions. Now we had one in town a couple years ago that was tranked inside a person's house two blocks from my mom's house. So it's getting out of control. It's growing, growing. Eventually you have an apex predator population that butts up against humanity and civilization. And that just doesn't work. You know, reactive management only goes so far. And that's what's great about our wildlife management model now. It's proactive. It's looking ahead and it's avoiding these problems. These people are saying, well, we'll just deal with it when the problem comes, which still results in the death of the animal. It's just ironic. Again, hypocrisy. Yeah. And we're actually seeing that play out now in New Jersey with that stunning reversal from anti-hunting governor Phil Murphy. And it came to... Uh, he came to a conclusion to reverse his previous stance because there was a, what is it? 237% increase in human bear conflict. So he had, he was forced to have to reconsider his very misguided policy. Could you talk about that? Because that I know that the sportsmen in New Jersey have been trying to pressure him. And I know he's also been facing challenges from his own game commission too. I, I don't think they're all on board this. So his game commission probably recommended to him from my understanding that, Hey, the bear human conflicts are increasing. This is 
wreaking havoc. It's not good for the bears. It's not good for the humans. So talk about that, how he was forced his hand to have to change his policy. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, <laughs> you said it. I mean, this is pretty wild. I, I never would have guessed it. Never would have guessed it. This is a man, Governor Jer- Murphy, who campaigned on the idea of ending the bear hunt. It was a campaign promise and in his reelection. I mean, he is all in. He is a devout follower. I mean, a disciple of exactly what Wildlife for All is preaching. And it just doesn't work. Uh, he even, even this summer, he was doubling down, said, yeah, there's issues, but we're going to work on non-lethal means. And he appointed or uh, appropriated like another $3 million for the next budget cycle to deal with this. Now all the data keeps coming out. People are getting attacked. Guy in his garage, a kid, dogs getting eaten. Um, and so even he finally admitted, you know, he's termed out. He doesn't have anything to gain. He's, you know, this is a... He just finally came to the conclusion, I guess, that this doesn't work. And so he he rescinded the order and reinstituted the bear hunt effective immediately. So December 5th, I believe, to the 10th, there's a possibility of a later hunt after that to uh, thin out these bear populations. But I mean, he doubled down, doubled down, doubled down. We went we took him to court. We went to court with him and we put an expert on the stand who testified for three days about the science, about the population, about what's going to happen. And he said, even that year or so that they took off, and while this was going to court, had wiped out the gains that the previous hunt had made under Chris Christie. And he said, in two years, there's a two-year lag, you're going to see an exponential growth in human bear conflicts. Almost two years to the day, Governor Phil Murphy is forced to rescind that because of a 237% increase in category one dangerous attacks. It's a stunning reversal. I, when I saw it from you guys first, I was like, is this groundhog day or not groundhog day? Is this April fool's day? Because it, I was, I was shocked because he was probably one of the few politicians ever to campaign specifically on outlawing the bear hunt. But now he's facing criticism, interestingly enough, from original backers, the Sierra Club of New Jersey, the Humane Society. And I hope he holds the line. It's amazing, though, that he does now follow or want to follow the wildlife science, you know, following the science. We always hear that uh, phrase put out there. But now he's actually understanding that wildlife science shouldn't be politicized. You have to base it on facts. You have to base it on increases in human bear conflicts and Maybe he understands that if you have a managed hunt, I think, what is it? They need to cull 20% of bears, I think, in this season. Is that the number that they have to reach? I think it's even higher. Higher than 20%. I think I believe so. Um, but I, I think that's kind of the average of what they get um, and, and the aim for is somewhere in there. But again, they're behind the curve now. Mm-hmm. You know? So it, the, the 20% is kind of what they shoot for when it's in within management parameters. So now they've had two, three, four years without a hunt, that growth is exponential and compounding. And so they're going to have to have higher yields to catch back up with that. It won't, won't be done in a single year. Um, but the good thing about this is it ties the next governor's hands to this. And so it can't just be reversed like that. So it's tied in for five years or something like that. So that's a, that's a good thing and great for the people in New Jersey. 
you know, who live up in that densely populated area with bears. I suspect it'll be a campaign issue for them. And actually, the Republican was really, really close to toppling Murphy. I wonder if he runs again, if he's going to make it a campaign issue. I think he'll win over people uh, specifically campaigning for rational bear management. So I think it's uh, Jack Citarelli, I think, was the individual. So I wonder if we're going to see that issue play out, um, especially with a lot of people souring on Phil Murphy. Like I said, he barely cruised re-election, but maybe Republicans like that will make it an issue. But speaking of elections, and different positions. So obviously the Senate, I'm not too, I'm not too thrilled about what that makeup is. Um, I'm not sure if bad anti-hunting legislation will advance. I think a lot of the moderates in the Senate will not support that. Uh, the House side, Republicans will be taking that over. We have Chairman Bruce Westerman, who's a hunter and forester. He's going to be leading natural resources. So I don't think he's going to be advancing anything bad with respect to hunting and fishing, thankfully. But I want to emphasize, since we're talking about governors, kind of some results of governor's races. And I think people are now heightened to the fact that paying attention to what happens in your state house and your governor's mansion is extremely important as it relates to how immediate and and the immediate certain threats are to your hunting livelihood in terms of their power to appoint commissioners. I want to isolate uh, three states in particular. So Nevada actually flipped from uh, Democrat to Republican. You have Sheriff Lombardo, governor-elect. We have Arizona flipping from red to Democrat. And then we also have Pennsylvania, I think, even shifting more and more to the left, perhaps maybe more anti-hunting. Um, what do you make of those three races? And do you worry that those states could have commissioners that are anti-hunting? Yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been an interesting year, that's for sure. Uh, it is. It, it's, it becomes very important, those, you know, especially in wildlife management. We talk a lot about what happens in the House and the Senate at the federal level, but most of your wildlife management takes place at the state level. There's big pieces, you know, Africa imports and stuff that they try to push through there. But I mean, 90 plus percent or more is takes place at your state level. So your governor, you know, if if he's going to sign a piece of legislation that gets pushed through or not, you know, your state uh, Senate and houses that are that are pushing things through that's where the real change comes from. And that's where we can get handcuffed really badly. I mean, the coasts are a perfect example, Washington, Oregon, California, New Jersey, New York, you know, especially the left coast here. Uh, we're almost where are we're handcuffed. Like we have very little that we can do to fight back because the governors and the legislatures are all in lockstep. And they're very friendly to the other side. And so if they want to pass something, they can usually do it. And so it just, again, I mean, we say it all the time that, you know, voting is important and your voice is heard. But for wildlife management, those state, those state races, whether it's in the legislature or for the governorship, are, are everything. You know, they, it's going to advance the bill or as in the governors, you know, uh, can appoint commissioners who then can deny seasons or change seasons or whatever. So we have to be active. We have to uh, be politically engaged or else it's just going to be sliced away piece by piece. And what should conservationists look forward to with new legislative sessions? What are uh, hunting interests advancing kind of in your periphery, what you know, and then what are the anti-hunters trying to advance? Because I know there's a whole spread of different legislation, good and bad, 
But what should people be on the lookout for? More incremental bans to hunting, more advancements towards hunting. What exactly could we see on our radar in 2023? Uh, <laughs> well, pre-filing is going to start pretty quick. Some of it's already started a little bit, but uh, it's going to ramp up here in the next couple of weeks and for the next month. So we'll start seeing and putting out alerts on pre-files and it, it's going to be more of the same. I mean, it's, they do not stop. They'll introduce the same bill over and over, and over again, you know, and then it gets a little traction in the media. They're like, well, this was introduced once or twice and there must be an issue here. It's a psychological game almost. It's PR marketing. Uh, well, if there, there must be an issue here. And so they'll, everything we've seen for the last one, two, three, four, five years, it's going to keep coming, you know, whether it's game commissions, whether it's incrementally taking things away whether it's changing things, it's going, it's just, it's never not, it's nonstop deluge come January one to, you know, middle of June. And we could look out for the form of, I think they're going to try to ban predator contests, probably some big game hunting across certain States. I'm trying to think what else I would want the listeners to be aware of, but I think we're going to see largely in, in those purple or blue leaning states where you have a lot of these preservationists in charge. We'll see perhaps some proposals to restrict certain things um, coming. Predator management is mm-hmm. a big one. That's where they're going with this. And this is kind of what, uh, the, you know, coming full circle, what wildlife for all and everybody is putting forward. We don't hunters aren't needed. Let the predators do the job of controlling the unglit herds. And, and we'll go from there. So that's part of what they're trying to do is take away predator management tactics or outright bans. You know, they start with hound hunting and baiting, you know, and then and the contests, different things like that. And then they just kind of advance it from there, you know, trapping, whatever it is. You know, we've seen it. We've seen it in California with uh, bobcats. Mm-hmm. There was supposed to be a discussion on uh, trapping and uh, trapping bobcats in Joshua Tree National Park. Next thing you know, it's a statewide ban because they saw the opening and they took it, you know. And so that's exactly what they do and what they want to do. And then as they protect those predators more and more and make management harder and harder, the ungulate herds drop, those prey-based species, even smaller game, uh, drop. And so then they can say, hey, can't issue tags. They did it here in Washington in the Blues Mountains. You know, very high depredation of elk calves. And they said, well, we'll just eliminate the the, uh, hunter tags and that should be fine. And so they're just moving the ball, moving the chain, trying to push this wildlife for all uh, idea of of not hunting predators, protecting them and letting them do the job that we do. If hunters and anglers included are removed from the equation, I think we'll see so many different imbalances. We'll see a lot of predator animal or human animal conflicts a lot more. We're going to see a lot of imbalance. We're going to see many more people hurt because of just irresponsibility of these people who lean on emotions and not science. And I think two ways that conservationists could really draw attention to this. We have the capabilities to do marketing campaigns. We have to sometimes show the gruesome stuff. And I think we could lean in on one of the more recent cases of the, the several wrestlers who were t- mauled by the grizzly but managed to survive show like what the real human impact is when you don't have a grizzly hunt as something as a you know big picture like that or even something smaller and more relatable and and then just show kind of the gruesome details of like this is what happens 
when you don't have this in, in effect. And then you can also show that people do care about these animals too. It's not just about management, but for the well-being of not only humans, but for the bears. And then I know we do really well in, in the industry to explain how people don't want to extirpate, let's say, black bears or even grizzly bears out of the ecosystem again. We we want them to exist, but if they're not managed, everything goes to chaos. And then the second thing I think we can do is to kind of shut out these preservationist groups from the equation. I think exposing them is going to be helpful, uh, showing who they're aligning with and making sure that they don't elect people to office. Because I bet you they're going to be forming political action committees to say, let's have these new conservationists, you know, elected to office. So I'm not sure what the response would be, but I think sportsmen's groups may have to create additional groups that are able to lobby or able to politically electioneer um, to perhaps challenge people and run candidates who represent sportsmen's interests. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, they're going to try everything they can and keep pushing. And we do need to be able to show the effects of poor management, which, you know, this New Jersey reversal is, I mean, that's about as good as we can get to show that, look, you know, this guy, devout disciple, even realized that it doesn't work. You can't just throw money at it and do non-lethal stuff. And no matter how many trash cans you put out there, you know, bear proof trash cans, you're still going to have an issue, you know, and yeah, we're, we're going to have to work together. And, you know, we work uh, here in Oregon and Washington, we're working with a coalition of, you know, outdoor groups to uh, kind of address some of the stuff and work on bigger picture stuff. So you're exactly right. Brian, if everyone wants to learn about Sportsman's Alliance, follow your guys' efforts to expose and to kind of stop the efforts of these emerging groups. Where can people go to? How can they get involved? Put all the links out there if you can. Yeah, uh, well, we're on Facebook and Instagram, of course, Sportsman's Alliance or Sportsman's All on Instagram. But uh, on our our website, sportsmensalliance.org, that's M-E-N-S, sportsmensalliance.org. And you can sign up at the bottom of the page, lower left-hand corner, Uh, sign up to get our weekly newsletter that we kind of round up all the big stories, put them out there, as well as you will then be signed up for your state alert. So if something comes across our piece and we put it out there, you'll get that alert. And uh, there's usually buttons to click and you can just fill out preformed written uh, emails or whatever to to those uh, political folks that make those decisions and make your voice heard. Excellent. We will encourage everyone to click on those links. They'll be in the show notes. Brian, as always, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You guys are on top of things. You help sharpen all of us who can communicate these talking points and updates. And we really appreciate your efforts. I know I can personally say that myself. And so keep doing it and we'll have you back on for more updates. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.